this is Writing the Coast, the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On this podcast, I interview the authors and illustrators that are nominated for the annual prizes. Like those I talk to, I'm a writer, and I bring my love of writing and great books to the conversations that you hear on Writing the Coast. If you want a story that'll get stuck in your head, and characters that will linger with you long after you close the book, you should be reading Kathy Page's books. Kathy is the author of two books of short fiction and eight novels, including Dear Evelyn, which won the 2018 Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize and was nominated for the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Dear Evelyn takes readers inside the relationship, marriage, and lives of Harry and Evelyn. It's a story that spends decades and sees the couple meet, grow up, and grow old together. But while there is love, it isn't necessarily a love story. Kathy introduces Evelyn and Harry, who are complex, complicated characters with different backgrounds, leading them to behave differently towards each other and their children. Kathy begins our conversation with a reading from Dear Evelyn, where we're introduced to Evelyn as a young woman the day she meets Harry. So I decided to read this time um, from near the beginning of the book. It's a chapter called Whatever the Poets May Say. And it's the first time the readers will meet Evelyn, who's a young woman. Um, They've met Harry before, but only as a child. And um, this bit that I'm going to read um, leads up to the, the meeting between Evelyn and Harry. It takes place in 1939 in Battersea in London. It's just on the eve of the Second World War breaking out. I think that's all you need to know, except that there's reference to um, a novel, Rebecca, which was by Daphne du Maurier, and which came out about that time. And also that there's a character in here, a man in a tweed suit, and that is not Harry. Whatever the poets may say. Across the hallway, The librarian had decorated the ladies' reading room with vases of tulips and ferns. But the chairs there were hard and the tables wobbled when you leaned on them. Evelyn preferred the other room where the panelling was in oak and the light fell softly from the gallery above and everything exuded an aura of solidity and permanence. She had started Rebecca only to see whether it was worth carrying home, but now she found it hard to put down despite the fact that she was more than half irritated with the girl telling the story, who did not stand up for herself and constantly complained to the reader, even about her own good fortune. This girl was living in Monte Carlo, of all places, a luxury seaside resort that Evelyn could only imagine. Its white buildings clustered around the foothills of a mountain and the surrounding sea and intense ultramarine, the colour of longing itself. Yachts jostled in the marina and along the front were grand hotels, casinos, theatres, cafes with orchestras and awnings, marble pavements, palm trees. The vehicles were spotless, the women elegant, the men clad in cream linen suits. Jazz orchestras played all the latest dances and there were no headlines about Hitler and Mussolini, no long speeches or ominous warnings on the radio, absolutely nothing to worry about. And this nameless girl, blind to her own luck, had been hired as a companion to an older woman, 
hardly heavy work, and she was staying with her in a hotel called Côte d'Azur. She had met a rich, sophisticated older man who, heaven knew why, was showing an interest in her. You would think that she might enjoy at least some of this, but no. I am glad it cannot happen twice, the fever of first love, the nameless girl wrote, complaining again. For it is a fever and a burden too, whatever the poets may say. Why should love be a fever and a burden? Evelyn looked up, momentarily meeting the hungry eyes of the tweedy-looking man opposite her. She turned slightly to avoid his gaze. Why not exciting or satisfying? And why should anyone believe a woman who did everything wrong, who, clearly desperate for attention, had no sense of her own dignity and put up with rudeness and bad behaviour? In this, she reminded Evelyn of her mother, who allowed all and sundry, including Evelyn, but especially Evelyn's father, to take advantage of her. She forgave him repeatedly, gave him money to waste, new starts, last chances. To Evelyn, she said, I can't help it, sweetheart. I've made my bed, but I hope you choose better than I have. Could you do worse than a man who forgets to hand over his wages and has to have his soiled trousers pulled off him when he comes home singing in the middle of the night? A man who stinks of drink, urine and menthol and wants you to sit on his knee while he tells you that you are his favourite girl? Who coughs right over the dinner? And if this is what love does, if it turns you into a fool and a drudge to be used and trampled on, then she would have absolutely nothing to do with it. Nothing at all. Still avoiding the man's gaze, yet aware of it, Evelyn returned to the book. Despite its heroine's faults, the story had something to it. What did Maxime de Winter see in the girl? Was it her very brokenness, her weakness, her stupidity that attracted him? There were men like that, tyrannical, bullying types, and Evelyn planned to avoid them too. So, she read on, perfectly poised in her chair, her bag by her feet, her elbows on the desk, taking care not to crumple the light that jacket she wore. At the end of the sixth chapter, in which Maxime de Winter delivered his boorish marriage proposal, hunger ambushed her. She closed the book and made her way down the flight of red marble steps to the terrazzo floor and out through the reference library, which she liked for its coat of arms with the golden bees and the clock and the curved glass ceiling that made it seem like a railway station, as if everyone studying in that room, their heads wearily bent over school or trade textbooks, was actually going somewhere else. Monte Carlo, perhaps. Harry, already late, half ran towards the library. And I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Kathy. I was really taken with um, the characters in the book, and they really drive the story. Where did the inspiration for Harry and Evelyn come from? Oh, it came from quite close to home, actually. Um, the book is based on my own parents' marriage and was inspired by two things, really. One was um, that at the end of my parents' very long marriage, they were married for same length of time as these two characters, seven decades. What had always been, um, to, to my view, 
a fairly argumentative marriage became very embattled and, and quite difficult and bitter as they approached their 90s. And it was very upsetting to see. And there was very little that anyone else in the family, including me and my two sisters, could do to fix this. So it was distressing. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, my mum, in the way that elderly people often do, started to clear out the house to make things simple um, for anyone who had to do that after their deaths, I, I guess was the subtext there. And one of the things she wanted to pass on was the love letters that my father had written to her during the Second World War when he was um, serving in the armed forces. And there were, I can't remember the exact number, I'm sure I've said it in interview, but I, my memory's not what it used to be. So <laughs> there were a lot of them, a uh, hundred some, some. And um, it wasn't the whole set for the entire time it was apart, bits had been lost, but a lot of letters. And they were amazing in their language, in their passion, and in the way he had used the letter writing to not just tick over with the relationship, but to try and progress it and deepen it. I was presented, or we all were really, because we all read them, with the very passionate, loving, optimistic, despite the war beginning of this relationship and the vision of where it had ended up. And so for me as a writer, I suppose it was a natural enough thing to, to want to understand somehow and not necessarily by interrogating two elderly people <laughs> uh, how one thing had become the other. So after a lot of struggle as to what to do and how to do it, I settled on this notion that I would create two characters who shared many characteristics but were also different and did things that my parents had never done, who were different enough to be characters, not replicas, and that I would explore these questions that had come up, which was, you know, how did one thing become another and was it inevitable, you know, was character destiny in a way and were, were they sort of incompatible from the beginning and it only showed up over time or um, was I seeing it wrong and were they in fact still in love with each other even though they fought all the time at the end mm -hmm. so it took a long time to to be able to really do the the questions and the material and all the feelings involved justice but that was where I started how old were you when you were given the letters let me think that's a bit a bit mathematical <laughs> So, in my 50s, I'm 62 it, now, so it, it, it was about 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. And so it was probably at a time when you're, you were already seeing the changes in your parents' relationship, so to have that, that glimpse yeah. backwards must have been so interesting. It was interesting and, and, and sort of magnetic because there was clearly a whole story between those two points. And, you know, I'd obviously been there. For the years when I was I was the last of three quite spread out daughters so I'd seen uh, only ever know my parents in middle age so my view of them was probably different to uh, those of the sisters who were born younger born younger so that was all very interesting to explore as well was Louise inspired by you then well yeah she, Louise is is the third child so that was my place in the family she's different yeah. to me in some ways but yeah yeah 
Yes, I'm not going to say Louise, c'est moi, but <laughs> definitely something of me and Louise. Yeah. Mm. So the the letters obviously factored largely into your research, but I, as I was glimpsing through the the acknowledgments in your book, it seemed like there was a lot of other research as well, including um, trips to the UK. Yes, although I have a fairly good memory of London and things like that, I'm the sort of writer who really likes to to have a, a strong sort of physical sense of my story settings. So I was lucky enough to get some grant support to, to go back and visit places and also to look at archives so I could see how they had looked back in the various times I was writing about. I looked at, for instance, that library in the reading. Um, it's still there and it's, it's still the same building, though it's been reconfigured inside. Some bits remain, other bits have been got rid of. Um, but they had a great archive of photographs of the library interior and exterior through through the century. And, of course, many of the streets in London, apart from bomb damage and where they've been rebuilt as a result of that, are kind of identical to the, the way they would have been in the 1920s and 30s, bar a few things. A, they were cleaner looking. <laughs> um, there weren't cars everywhere. And the trees were smaller. So by walking through it with those things in mind, you could sort of clear out the modern stuff and and see how, what they would have seen. So that was very important for me to, to get a strong sense of setting as the characters would have experienced it. How old were you when you left London? Oh, well, um, again, this is... <laughs> I'm asking you to do a lot of math, sorry. Yes, and, uh, um, so... So let me see. We came here. I, prob- I was probably uh, 42. Okay. Mm, yes. Yes, pretty much. Yeah. So in middle age, and we came with two small children. And had your sisters already left as well at that time? Um, one of them had. She she left when I was very young and went to live in the States. And the other one uh, left after me. Okay. So none of us live in the UK now. Yeah. Yeah. What was their role in in the writing of the book? Well, I'd never done such a thing before. I'd never written a, a novel or more than I'd occasionally written a short story inspired by family things, but nothing like this. And to start with, I felt fairly secretive and protective about it because it took me a long time to find out how to do it. And then once I was getting into the rhythm of it, of progressing the story as I do um, in these sort of leaps and jumps through time and with some switches of perspective, I suddenly realized that I was becoming increasingly anxious because although all the characters were somewhat changed from their inspirations, they were also very similar. And I wanted, I was anxious that my sisters would be upset or dislike it in some way. I'd already asked for my father's permission to use his letters and been given it. But I I felt there was potential for upset. I think it's something many writers have to deal with and people deal with it in different ways. Some people just brazen their way through and make a, a gamble that everyone's going to be happy in the end or or if not that it was worth it. But for me it was paralyzing. So I confessed what I was doing 
and um, sent the, I mean, it was far from a complete manuscript. It was probably only half the book in bits to my sisters to ask them if this sort of thing would be upsetting in any way and and we could talk about it if so. And then uh, what was so funny was it seemed to me like this a terribly urgent question, <laughs> but it seemed to take them weeks to get round to reading it. And then when they did, one sister was very clear that it was fine by her and she was quite interested in the whole thing. The other one was a little bit more wary, but even so didn't want to stop it. So I felt I had enough of um, a sort of pat on the back, really, to continue. And then later on, when I finished um, my final draft, I had to, I felt, send it to them again. And again, I had I had to wait weeks. <laughs> they were on holiday or something, different holidays. Very suspenseful time. But... But yeah, my, my um, one of my sisters, the closest in age, really loves this book, and the other one hasn't actually read the final draft because she feels it might be too emotional for her. But she's happy for it to exist. It was really interesting for me to read because um, it reminded me of my grandparents a lot as well, and and in their relationship where. I see it for what it is now as a as an adult, and I saw them growing up. But you often forget that there were at one point two young people in love, and and so I felt connected to the story in that way. But it, it was also interesting for me with Evelyn, and it was just in your reading there the parallels between Rebecca and, and Evelyn. Sorry, I'm calling saying Evelyn. Evelyn, it, the parallels there were very interesting, how she didn't want to be like Rebecca, but I found myself so conflicted with her character, mm. where I wanted so deep, much to like her, but then there was these parts where you just wanted to grab hold and, and kind of shake her. I found that really such an interesting reading experience. Oh, good. Because that's something I'm very interested in as a writer, is this particularly difficult but powerfully affecting characters. I somehow seem drawn to, to write about them. I've had other other such characters in other books. And with Evelyn, it's the very essence of her. And just on the, the how you say the name, for some reason, I've seemed to have grown up saying Evelyn. And so that's, I think it's a British thing, maybe. But it doesn't matter uh, as a reader or listener, you know, just substitute what seems right for you. For me, that's the essence of her is that she has so many qualities which are in a way quite attractive. She has tremendous energy and and sort of a sort of self-confidence. She's certainly in the earlier part of the book. She's quite an attractive character, certainly to men. She's very attractive because she has this sort of physical energy about her and she's good looking. And she's noticeable somehow. But some of these very strengths are also weaknesses. And this is something I think is often the case with our characters, that we have qualities that are sort of highly prized and useful in some ways, but are also going to trip us up in others if we're not in control of them. And for Evelyn, I think her strength her sense of not wanting to be bossed around and her concern, which you saw in that reading, her concern about the, you know, the price of love <laughs> and the possibilities for being not in control of herself and her destiny or of being humiliated or all this sort of thing. 
those fears go are with her all her life and they do get in her way of um, get in the way of her being able to be very close or intimate with people when when you have to be vulnerable she can't very easily be vulnerable so she is a very complicated character and I think many people want to shake her I think one of I think one of the reviewers I think it was in Canadian literature or something Pashamala he said he wanted to throw the book across the room at certain <laughs> points, and I, I, it was a compliment. I, I think she is she's powerful in that way. Hmm. Yeah, I mean the the chapter with with Louise and uh, and the police department. I mean that's such a a sign of the the era where that would have been playing out. But also just you wanted to you wanted to grab hold of her and and shake her and just say you know these aren't the battles you need to be fighting. Yes, exactly. But the thing with Evelyn is that she does, I think, as Harry says um, in that chapter when when he's talking to Louise, you know, she she has to be how she is. Mm -hmm. There's there's a limit. There's a limit to the amount of growth that Evelyn can undertake. And I suppose it's a question too. One of those questions I picked at and don't answer, but just open up as I as I progress the story. And you know, would she have would she have benefited from having someone who challenged her more, or as Harry fears, if he had challenged her more, would she have sort of pulled the drawbridge up and gone, or as she tries to do at one point? Mm -hmm. Look, so yeah, there's a lot of questions that I I do that thing with of just exploring and not answering, but I I hope readers enjoy imagining their way through them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean the other the other part I found so interesting was the the way that the influence the influence of the past on the present kind of played out in so much of their story and and plays out in other people's stories in terms of war brides and the lasting of impact of war but also the family culture because you really see with Evelyn how her parents marriage and their relationship had such an impact on how she was with Harry as well Oh, absolutely. I think that um, business with Evelyn and her father, which came up in reading as well, her sort of anger at him and certain events in her childhood, which she remembers all her life, uh, of dealing with her father, who was an alcoholic, but not just an alcoholic. He was also quite ill. He had TB, mm -hmm. um, as, as was gradually understood. Her, she, she develops a sort of horror of physical weakness and bodily fluids and all these things that again is something she's not able to get over and um, something I realized in writing the book was that of course much of the story takes place in an era long before there was even the vocabulary to talk about mental illness let alone you know resources like counseling um, and so the story visits characters at various times where they deal with huge things in their lives. One of the characters early on has postnatal depression, which she doesn't have a word for, mm -hmm. um, just the reality of. And there's no real help for overcoming it, but um, she finds her own way uh, to deal with it and, and does eventually. That's Harry's mother. Quite often, I think, people found a way to cope with these big psychological issues, which perhaps was less than ideal, uh, but enabled them to go on living. But, but there was a lot of fallout. 
and mm -hmm. people often got sort of bruised in the ongoing fallout. I'm not saying that we've completely solved all these problems now, far from it, but I think at least there is more of a vocabulary and more of a habit of talking about um, psychological issues than there was back then, even after the war. Yeah. Well, and one example of that is when she goes to the doctor with the her heart thumping and he's basically pointing out that she's got stress and anxiety, but she she can't talk about it that way. No, it's unfortunate that he's he's quite a sexist sort of doctor, mm -hmm. and she certainly picks up on that. But I think even without that, she would probably have rejected his diagnosis because the idea of having such a thing as um, anxiety or any kind of neurosis would have seemed to her like a, a terrible uh, weakness and a shameful thing. Yeah. And it's, it's really heartbreaking to watch the way, because she doesn't have the language or the ability to reach out for help, the way it impacts their relationship as they're aging, because you can see that Harry still has that love and affection for her, but she just sees her father. Yes. Yeah. She sees that degeneration into a kind of, for want of a better word, the shorthand, weakness. Yeah. Um, that she can't, she literally can't cope with or bear. Yeah. And it's so that's what makes her so difficult to feel soft towards because I think the reader, on the other hand, is feeling compassionate on the whole. Most readers do towards um, Harry and his situation. And there she is resisting that <laughs> and behaving in a way that seems perhaps quite cruel. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard you um, talk about exploring this idea of complicated empathy uh, in your writing and particularly in this book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I, I don't know what you heard me say before, so I hope I don't contradict. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I've always been interested in this kind of difficult person. And I wouldn't say drawn to them, not in the sense of wanting to you know, surround myself with them or live with them or anything. But a story I often tell is about a teacher I had at um, secondary school who taught Latin and was incredibly bad-tempered, absolutely foul. She used to throw things at us, shout at us. Um, none of us wanted to be in the class anyway, uh, and, and even more... Um, did we hate it because of this sort of pyrotechnic temper she had? And children uh, did used to get anxiety attacks. They were called asthma attacks, but they were, I think, anxiety attacks in her class quite regularly. But despite how awful this teacher was, her name was Miss Edmonds. I'm sure she's dead now. I remember as as a as a young teenager being quite interested in her and spending those lessons when I wasn't dodging the board eraser being thrown at me, think, thinking without coming to any really clear answers as to why on earth she was like this. Like, it was clear to me that it wasn't her, that it wasn't our fault, that we hadn't done anything wrong. <laughs> she was the one that was out of order. And I really wanted to understand her. And at the time, I don't think I was capable. I didn't know enough about adult life to know the sorts of things that might have been going on for her but um she stayed with me and i still do find myself thinking 
of course she was probably menopausal for a start. <laughs> Not that all menopausal women are you know, such harridans, but she was probably someone who loved her subject, uh, Latin and the classics, and would have liked to teach in a university with lots of passionate students who loved reading about Caesar and the Gallic Wars more than we did. Um, but of course, at that time, such jobs would have been sort of going to men. And yes, she was single, and who knows whether she was voluntarily single or really single, or whether she had a female partner, or who knows what stresses her life was giving her. So I'm sure there was a reason why Miss Edmonds was as she was. I've always found these characters interesting and very productive to write about in fiction. For instance, uh, in my novel Alphabet, the protagonist Simon is such a character. He's a, quite a dangerous man. He's committed a murder, yet he's also at times fairly charming. He has a sense of humour. He has a curiosity and a bit of drive in him towards learning. So the characters he runs up against often struggle to know how to react to him. And I think the readers go through alternating suspicion and empathy and quite a roller coaster of a ride with Simon too. So it, it's definitely something I'm interested in and I think it's something that fiction is great for. It allows you to expand your empathy in that way. It doesn't mean that you have to um, have Evelyn move in with you for real. <laughs> Spend those few days that you're reading the book seeing yeah. how much you can go along with her and understand her or not. Thanks to Kathy for being on the podcast. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in to Writing the Coast. If you want to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit the website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also follow the prizes on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Coming up on the next episode, I'll be chatting with Anjana Young-Hoi, whose beautiful book of poetry, The Small Way, was nominated for the 2019 Dorothy Livesay Prize. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss that. So until we meet again, stay cozy and warm and enjoy some great books. <laughs>